We've been fighting in West Virginia, and there's a number of other states that have joined us in this fight, and that is the fight against ESG. We introduced legislation that passed and is now law, which created the Restricted Financial Institutions List. So we sent out letters to BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, U.S. Bank, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, um, and said, we believe that you have prohibitive policies that is a boycott of the fossil fuel industry by our legal definition. You have 30 days to appeal. They all appealed, and um, through that process, five of them, we found were boycotting the fossil fuel industry really by their own admission. And so we placed them on the restricted financial institution list. So what does that mean in practice? That means their contracts are terminated, which we terminated their contracts. And now they are prohibited from bidding on any contracts with the state of West Virginia moving forward. So we're talking about millions, actually billions of dollars of potential contracts that they have now lost. I'm the sole contracting authority for all state government. So it's not just my office. This is the DMV. This is West Virginia University, Marshall University, Department of Health and Human Resources. You name it. It all comes through me. So they're not getting any of that business now. We're done with all that nonsense. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And boy, do we have another fantastic episode for you guys today, a live episode. We, in fact, had Riley Moore back on sooner than expected for a live discussion. Uh, this is actually a panel that we hosted up here in D.C., um, but don't worry, it holds up as podcast content extremely well. There were some great audience questions that spiced up the program and we hope you guys will listen. Uh, just in case you forgot who Riley Moore is, Riley Moore is the one-man uh, warrior against the asset managers, BlackRock, Vanguard, State Street, all these institutions. They hate him, uh, and he has been going to war with them as the state treasurer of West Virginia. He is a former welder, former staffer on the House Armed Services Committee, uh, and all-around patriot and fun-loving guy. We did three, four events with him in uh, D.C. Uh, last Friday, and um, he absolutely charmed everyone with with uh, how winsome and smart and engaged in the fight that he is. And so uh, we hope you guys will enjoy this this special episode of Moment of Truth. Rate and review the podcast. As always, go to AmericanMoment.org. But for now, we'll go straight to State Treasurer Riley Moore. Hello, guys. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, thank you guys for being here, uh, for being the the august few who uh, didn't want to just come for the booze, but actually for a good conversation about uh, about public affairs as well. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment. If you have questions about who we are and what we do, just come up to me afterwards, though I think most of you are fairly well initiated. Uh, I want to introduce our uh, guest today, uh, someone we believe in quite a bit here at American Moment, someone who, uh, if there was an award given out for statewide elected officials who do the most with the role they have, he would win it. Um, and it's not because he's a governor or an attorney general. Those are roles that people traditionally think are the, the real action items at the state level. He's a state treasurer. And you may or may not even know what state treasurers do, but hopefully you will after this, and you'll know what this particular state treasurer has been doing um, against the 
war that Wall Street has waged on West Virginia. Uh, just to give a little bit of Riley's formal bio, he is the 25th state treasurer of West Virginia. He was elected in 2020. He was born in Morgantown, and he started his career as a welder. Uh, he has an undergraduate degree in government and international politics from George Mason University and a master's degree in strategic security studies from the National Defense University at Fort McNair. Uh, he was national security advisor to the Foreign Affairs Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives and then a contractor at the Department of Homeland Security and in the defense and aerospace industry at Textron. Uh, but in 2016, he was elected to the West Virginia House of Delegates, uh, the 67th district, and then he uh, was the assistant majority whip in the state house and the uh, incoming majority leader of the House of Delegates. Um, in one term, he sponsored more than 24 bills that became law aimed at protecting individual freedoms, making West Virginia a better place to do business, and ensuring that its government worked for its citizens. Uh, he took office in uh, this new role in 2021 and has been extremely active since. Please give him a round of applause. I just chucked my phone over there. Hopefully it's fine. Uh, so Riley, I want you to just give people an overview what it is what it is that the West Virginia State Treasurer historically does and what is it that you have decided to do? Well, thank you, Sharab. And so historically, my predecessor just uh, handed out checks uh, to people which kept him in office for 24 years um, <laughs> uh, through the unclaimed property the, division. The last Democrat statewide? That was, uh, well, well, other than Manchin. there's still one left. That's for another discussion. Uh, we'll work on that one. Um, but yeah, he was the second to last uh, statewide Democrat. He'd been in for 24 years. Um, I'm the first Republican elected to state treasurer in 92 years in West Virginia. And uh, I'm the only uh, Republicans ever beat, it, beat a 24-year incumbent statewide in West Virginia. So that was a great election cycle for me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, do you want me to talk about the office a little bit? Are yeah, people please. familiar with state treasurer? I don't expect you to be. No, probably not. It's all right. Um, so m almost every state uh, in America has a state treasurer or some of them are called a CFO like they are in Florida. That's Jimmy Patronis down there. Uh, but in essence, we are the chief financial officers for our respective states. I'm the chief financial officer of the state of West Virginia, about $13 billion assets under management uh, on behalf of the state. And so I manage our funds, our savings programs, our banking contracts. And so all of the transactions of the state come from me. If you get a paycheck, it's got my name on it. If we're making payments uh, to a contractor, I do that as well. Uh, but we also manage the state funds in terms of investments, right? So I'm a member of the pension board, uh, which that's about $30 billion assets under management right now. We have different savings programs as well. Uh, College 529, I'm sure some of y'all are familiar with that. One of the newer ones that's really... Um, interesting is our jumpstart savings plan that we started, which is like a 529, but is for blue collar workers for, uh, for them to use upon graduation to buy tools, equipment, licenses, certifications, and new business startup costs. So go tell your bosses about that. I'd love to see that as a federal program. But uh, we also do uh, debt management. Um, I also have uh, authority in some of the bonding issues of the state as well. So all the financial uh, aspects that you'd think of uh, generally as a chief financial officer, uh, really of any private company or publicly traded company, uh, that is my role as state treasurer of West Virginia. 
And so when you entered office, I think you saw an opportunity to take the constitutionally obligated roles that you had as state treasurer of West Virginia and use it uh, in a creative and new way. The title of this panel series, of which this is the second, I guess, is is Red States in Defiance. Uh, I guess my question I'd pose to you is, is who exactly have you guys been defying? Uh, what, what big, powerful force in American life have you guys been pushing back against these past few months and years? Well, what we've been fighting in West Virginia, and there's a number of other states that have joined us in this fight, and that is the fight against ESG. Uh, that is what we have been battling against. And upon taking office, I had a number of energy companies in the state of West Virginia that approached me and said, Riley, look, we are losing access to capital. We're not able to continue to finance our operations, coal companies, natural gas, pipeline construction, things like that, due to ESG um, uh, frameworks that have been put out by lending institutions. And so I started to dig into this and found out it was very much the case that many of these big banks in America had lending policies, as they put out in policy frameworks, that had outright prohibitions on financing uh, things like thermal coal, natural gas, pipeline construction, oil exploration, which we do all three of those things in West Virginia. So to the question of, Riley, what can you do about it? Well, we ended up doing quite a bit. We dug in further, right? We also had uh, what I think is a distortion in asset allocation with asset managers such as BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, uh, where they were coercing capital away from these critical industries at the same time. Um, and obviously, all of us uh, that are at state level dealing with state pension funds, BlackRock's there. I mean, they're, they're there. BlackRock was part of the West Virginia Treasury Funds, actually. It was one of our liquidity funds, a sweep account. Uh, until January of this year, we just started to, uh, just started to uh, fight back. And uh, January of this year, we uh, eliminated BlackRock from the West Virginia State Treasury as one of our investment options. And then subsequent to that, we introduced legislation that passed and is now law, which created the restricted financial institutions list. That list um, we have now published, and it's in essence, any financial institution that is boycotting the fossil fuel industry will be put on the list. And we sent out six letters to, we started with companies that we were either currently doing business with or authorized to do business with. So we sent out letters to BlackRock, Goldman Sachs, U.S. Bank, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, um, and said, we believe that you have prohibitive policies that is a boycott of the fossil fuel industry by our legal definition. You have 30 days to appeal. They all appealed, and um, through that process, five of them, we found, were boycotting the fossil fuel industry, really by their own admission. And so we placed them on the restricted financial institution list. So what does that mean in practice? That means their contracts are terminated, which we terminated their contracts, and now they are prohibited from bidding on any contracts with the state of West Virginia moving forward. So we're talking about millions, actually billions of dollars of potential contracts that they have now lost. 
I'm the sole contracting authority for all state government. So it's not just my office. This is the DMV. This is West Virginia University, Marshall University, Department of Health and Human Resources, you name it. It all comes through me. So they're not getting any of that business now. We're done with all that nonsense because we had a clear conflict of interest. So let me give you an example. We hand dollars, tax dollars, generated by the fossil fuel industry. We collect severance taxes directly um, from coal and gas and oil. J.P. Morgan Chase, which is one of the ones that got listed, um, manages those dollars for us. But at the same time, through their policies, they're trying to diminish our funds, right? Because they're trying to destroy our industries, which has generated those dollars to begin with. So there's a conflict of interest there. And that's really our legal reasoning behind this is this conflict of interest that we have. So in the list, though, who ended up on the list, uh, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, Wells Fargo, and uh, BlackRock uh, were all banned. Now, U.S. Bank, this is the big news, they changed their policy. They changed their policy. They lifted their prohibition on lending to thermal coal and pipeline construction, natural gas pipeline, and they got to keep their contract with me. Now, since then, they've kept that contract, which does about $20 billion a year in transactions. It's an ACH contract. They've gone on to win contracts with South Carolina and Missouri, two contracts, South Carolina, I believe. And why those states? And this is part of the other thing that we did in this. I created a coalition of 15 states from around the country to all reform their banking contract processes, all of them. So this bill has passed in Texas. They put out their list uh, just a few months ago. It's passed in Tennessee, Oklahoma, and Kentucky. And I think next year we're going to see as many as 12 states run this exact same or similar legislation around the country because we have to leverage our capital and our assets to say that we're not going to take this anymore. And the problem why we're so focused on fossil fuel, because one, obviously it's a big deal for the state of West Virginia, but two, we're not forgetting the other two letters in this acronym, the social and the governance, but this is what fuels that project, right? That's the big problem. That is why they are pushing on this environmental crusade and the Trojan horse in this is the S and the G, right? That's the social and governance aspect of it. That's where you get DEI as part of this, right? Diversity, equity, inclusion, that is part of governance. Uh, so we're going to continue to fight on this. We're going to introduce more legislation next year in the legislative session as it relates to proxy voting. And if nobody knows what that is, I'm happy to explain what that is. That's a big problem for us. But the states... Are going to continue to push back on this. Um, of course, I've gotten blowback. It was really funny. I'd recently had, I think it was 15 Democrat state treasurers wrote a letter, a public letter to me saying how terrible I am and all this. And I put it on my wall and, you know, but it's, it was fascinating because they're like, you're distorting the marketplace. It's like I'm the distortion. I'm not distorting the marketplace. They're the distortion of the marketplace. You have to remember what I am doing is acting as a free market participant in the marketplace. I'm not a regulator. I don't regulate any of these folks. I'm putting out contracts and saying, this is our preference in the marketplace. 
just like any other contract with a proviso in it, right? That states, okay, we want you to meet this criteria. Well, here's the criteria that we have. So this is actually a free market solution to this. By no means are we distorting the marketplace. You go look at CalPERS out in California, their pension fund, they have decided to divest of all fossil fuel, which is their right if they want to do that. That's fine. I'm not saying I want to divest from anybody. I just want to do business with people that want to do business with us. It makes all the sense in the world. And I, I think that example of, of U.S. Bank changing policy based on the deterrence that you set up is the most exciting part of this because you know, there's a variety of market alternatives that are coming up in this space. Uh, really awesome work done by people like Vivek Ramaswamy with Strive Capital Management and, and, and other institutions. However, um, you know, it's almost an empirical question. Will these large financial institutions continue to exist? And if you think the answer is yes, then what they're doing matters. And so if there's a way to change their behavior, that's extremely exciting. What, what do you think the other low-hanging fruit is in terms of institutions that you think they don't really believe in this stuff, they don't really care they may just switch as well, or how should we be thinking about that category? Well, I would tell you this. I've had a number of financial institutions privately come talk to me and say, thank you for doing this, because they don't want to publicly come out against this. They don't want the blowback. They don't want to do this either, but they don't want to get punished in the public sphere around this. So that's why I'm sticking my head up and saying, no, we're not going to take it anymore. And I don't necessarily need them to, right? That's fine. I just know that we're in the right space on this. And not that I make a career out of quoting articles from CNBC, but uh, they had an interesting survey here recently where they surveyed uh, CFOs from all over the country and publicly traded companies. And 45% of them said they supported what I'm doing and what other states are doing. 45% of them. 30% were neutral and only 5% said that they objected to it. That's it. We're going, this, this, we're doing the right thing here and we can win. We just got to keep up the pressure. And U.S. Bank, by the way, is the fifth largest bank assets under management in the United States. So it's certainly uh, nothing to... Uh, it's not small potatoes. No, it's not small potatoes. Um, the... Part of this that I think sometimes can be a little bit uh, detached from what people see in this town is, what's the real harm that's being put on West Virginians because of these policies? Like on a day-to-day -day basis, why should an ordinary voter care and how has this been hurting them uh, in, in, in a way that you can touch and see? In West Virginia or just generally? In West Virginia. Yeah, in West Virginia, obviously, look, our fossil fuel industries are a huge part of our economy. It's a huge part of it. Coal mining, natural gas, oil, coal and gas being the first two. We're the fifth largest energy producer in the country. Uh, tiny little West Virginia, which is hard to believe. But you have to remember, I mean, there's always this story and narrative out there like the poor, miserable coal miner and, you know, this awful life that they have to lead mining coal. They're making on average $90,000 a year. These are very good paying jobs. Are they dangerous jobs? Certainly, just like any other job uh, that involves c construction or being involved in the energy industry or having to go underground. They certainly understand that risk, but these are very good paying jobs. Some of the best paying jobs actually in the state of West Virginia. Uh, for us to be able to diversify our economy in the long run, we need fossil fuel energy, right? I mean, it's hugely important to us. And then you have to think about it from a cultural standpoint from us. 
for us as West Virginians. We have been doing this since the state was created. We have a coal miner on our flag. I mean, this is, people have, a lot of people have lost their lives to be able to get to a point where the coal miner is making $90,000 a year. I mean, we had mine wars. People literally died. I mean, shooting at each other over this stuff. So this is, it's a cultural thing to an extent, obviously, but it's also more than anything. It is an economic consideration because if they destroy these industries, they'll destroy the state of West Virginia, I feel like, in the, uh, in the short term. And I mean, I guess we can all then build solar panels, but I guess those get made in China anyway. So, um, well, well, and that's an interesting side of this is that ESG, uh, the constraints that it puts on businesses, it's not going to stop with just energy production. It's basically any industry is ultimately going to suffer under the criteria that it sets out. And, you know, at some point, you can't just run an economy on email jobs and people calling each other racist for a living. And so stuff's going to be made somewhere, and chances are it's going to be made much more dirtily uh, and and with much, uh, you know, weaker labor conditions. Um, you know, it, where do you think ESG is training its eye next beyond just the coal industry, which seems to have been its, its lowest hanging fruit in terms of its attack point? Yeah, I mean, because, look, coal has been, we've been fighting this battle for a long time. We had the war on coal with Obama, and, of course, these guys have come right back around and try to destroy our jobs and economy once again, um, which seems to be the just consistent mantra with them. But I just one fact I do point out all the time, and I want people to understand this when you leave this room. In, in 1980, 40% of the world's power came from coal. Anybody have any idea what that number is today? It's 40%. It is still 40%. Don't let them lie to you about this. India, for instance, 75% of their power comes from coal, okay? So you're not going to tell me there's not a market out here for this stuff. Um, and now I got totally off track. What was your question? Well, it was just what, what are the other industries that, oh, that ESG yeah. is going to hurt? I, I mean, it's, it's really any of them, right? I mean, because you're going to get into this extortion racket that goes on in terms of like, okay, what is your board, is your board diverse enough? Okay, no, you've not met the criteria in terms of diversity on the board. Now we are going to downgrade you with an ESG, on your ESG score. ESG scores are attached to all publicly traded companies, all of them. There's agencies out there, not governmental ones, that give ESG scores to all securities that are out there. So if you're not diverse enough, you don't have enough women on your board, you don't... Uh, you don't ascribe to uh, Black Lives Matter. You don't uh, provide your employees abortion services. You don't. So th all of that is going to come into an ESG score eventually. And they're already on the DEI and some of this other stuff. And so that's the biggest problem you have to keep in mind here on ESG. What it is, is a workaround on the ballot box. They can't pass this stuff at the ballot box. That is what ESG is doing. It's leveraging capital to accomplish their goals because they can't do it through electoral politics. So everything you can think about is out there on this issue. I'll give you one last great example. We wrote a letter, Morningstar, who rates all of our 529 college savings account, but also does ESG ratings. Well, guess what their new factor is they put in? BDS. So do you do business in the, as they call, occupied territories uh, better known as the West Bank um, in, um, in Israel, right? Uh, do you do business with companies that are doing business with companies in the West Bank? I mean, so they, Morningstar rolled in this BDS consideration as part of their ESG score. 
it's, it, you know, when you're trying to define what it is, it can be really anything you want it to be. And that's why it's so scary because you can set those metrics and scores out there. But I'll tell you, they're not going to ask you a question like, do you support the Second Amendment? Um, if they do, it will probably lower your grade. But um, and that's the other thing, right? Now they're on the Second Amendment. We got credit card companies out there have changed their coding where they're going to be tracking all of our guns and ammunition as it relates to purchases. That's also part of ESG. So it's, I mean, we're all, it's all wrapped up into a nice, neat little package and they just happen to have more money than the entire United States GDP, BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard, $20 trillion they have to leverage for this stuff. So, I mean, it's, the stakes are massive. It sounds like it is. And, you know, when it comes to the moral case for fighting against this, you would assume that the right would be rah-rah cheering behind you, but they haven't been. What's been some of the pushback you've gotten from the institutional right, especially maybe more libertarian-minded people uh, or just more corporate Republicans uh, when it came to this, uh, you know, advent, advent that you've been on? Yeah, you know, when we were in the legislature on this, um, I had a number of Republicans uh, vote against it. They thought that I was interfering in the marketplace. They thought that I was uh, trying to uh, have undue influence in the capitalist system and things like that. And that is not the case here at all. Um, as I pointed out earlier, as a market participant, this is a free market solution. We're not interfering in the marketplace. But secondarily, Look, the people of West Virginia have not elected me to tell them that they're getting screwed. They already know that, right? <laughs> They've elected me to do something about it. And so that is why, and this is the other reason they don't like it, they think that I'm leveraging too much executive power in this. If I'm not here to stand up for my constituents' interests through my power and authority that I've been given in in my office, by them, then what am I doing here, right? And that is what I'm going to do. I'm going to stand up for their interests, and I'm going to stand up for their futures and their economic outcomes. Um, I've also gotten that it's unconstitutional what I'm doing. Well, we'll go ahead and let a courtroom settle that one out, and we've not, you know, knock on wood, been sued on this thing yet, um, which I think is probably for a reason. You know, I mean, you're talking about the biggest financial institutions on the globe. I think if they thought there was some legal standing here, they probably would. This is constitutional. What we are doing is absolutely constitutional. We are not a distortion in the marketplace on this. And in my view, this is a free market solution. And secondarily, if you think what they are doing is the free market, you are crazy. This is not the free market. What's going on here with ESG. This is, co this is coercive capitalism. That's exactly what is happening. They're coercing capital towards industries that they favor and away from the ones that they don't. Kind of sounds like command and control economics to me. I think you all know what that uh, system of government certainly looks like. It's called socialism. So uh, that's certainly what, uh, to me, just you have to understand, look, we're, we're certainly not uh, in a place where I think we're via, you know, against the Constitution or doing something that is uh, outside of our authority or, or, or prerogative. 
how have these uh, big financial institutions tried to respond to all this action that you've taken? What, what If they haven't sued you yet, what are the tools of the trade that they're using to, to get you to, to shut up? Um, well, you know, one of them is, and I see my lawyer here, they FOIA us all the time. So if they're watching this, thanks for that. We get one every day. Um, second, Hi, BlackRock. Yeah. <laughs> secondarily, um, of course, they put out statements in the media all the time. Uh, there's BlackRock has uh, employed a number of lobbyists around the country to push back against this. And other financial institutions have done the same thing. Um, obviously, uh, they said the exact same thing. JP Morgan, Chase, and BlackRock. This is you know, he's putting his thumb on the scale, the free market and this and that. And it's like the guys that are destroying the free market are telling me that I am a distortion of the market. That's interesting. So, um, and then of course we get the, you know, the typical, uh, media kind of backlash on this, which, um, I think it was like within three weeks, I was on the front page of the New York times twice getting trashed. Congratulations. On this. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I was like, can I turn this into a mailer? I'm going to win again. Um, but you know, that stuff doesn't deter me at all. It just tells me I'm doing the right thing. And you know, I'm just going to keep on marching down the road. And, um, you know, I, it, it was frustrating watching, you know, getting all these op-eds dropped in my local papers all over the state of West Virginia, which I know these people didn't write. Uh, you know, kind of trash in what I was doing, but you know, that's that's the way it goes. We still you're, you're telling me the local mailman doesn't fully understand the financial system and why you're really bad for yeah, uh, trying yeah. to put your thumb on the scales here. Yeah, I mean, we're getting all these op eds from, I mean, like Republicans and ones that I know. I'm like, they didn't write that. I okay. mean, I I know this guy. He didn't write that. It's fine. I guess he got you know maybe asked to do it or whatever, but. You just got to stand by your principles on this thing and they're not going to shake me off of this and we're just going to continue to do more and we're going to continue to stay aggressive on it uh, because that's what we have to do. Look, there's you all work in DC. There's a lot of talk going on here. We need more action, you know, and I think that's why it's really important at the state level right now where we have majorities like in the state of West Virginia where we can act. Do you feel like the activity that you've been engaged in over the last year or so has induced other state treasurers, controllers, and and you know people in a similar position managing state finances to get up off their butts and do something interesting? Oh yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned just previously, look, we've had this bill passed in many other states, and as I've gotten a little bit of notoriety out of this, you know, getting on. Fox News and Glenn Beck and all that stuff all the time talking about it's kind of raised the profile on it. And uh, there are a number of willing parties out there, uh, state treasurers, uh, I mean, just real patriots. Some of them, I mean, they don't even have any energy uh, as it relates to uh, coal, gas, or oil. They're just down for the cause. And they are, you know, marching right along here with us. And uh, God bless them. I mean, I don't know if there's anybody here from South Carolina, but uh, Treasurer Loftus is a freaking patriot. That guy's great. Uh, he, he's, he's, he's right there along with us. But that 15-state coalition that we've had has remained strong. And um, as I said, we're going to see a lot of these bills continue to come up. But there's states all over the country, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Texas, Florida. Governor DeSantis has done a lot as it relates to proxy voting down there. Thank God for that. That's a really big deal because they're a huge state. And uh, I think, look, I ultimately believe we're going to win in this. 
That's fantastic. Um, I want people to be uh, starting to think about some questions you might have for Riley on this financial stuff. But the interesting thing is, again, and, and why I think you should be applauded is you didn't just become a one trick pony when it came to using this position to do something interesting for your constituents and be useful to them. Uh, you've had a variety of other creative policy initiatives that have, I think, been been really special. Can you talk a little bit about it? Yeah, I'd love to. And that's one of those ones I just kind of touched on just on the surface, but it's called the uh, Jumpstart Savings Program. And uh, as you had mentioned in my intro, um, I, I was a welder. So I started my career off as a welder in a mining operation. And it's a very long story from there to here. So I won't uh, take up your whole time with it. But back then I was uh, trying to start my own mobile welding business, maintenancing mining equipment and different mining operations. And it was cost prohibitive. And I didn't end up going down that path. I probably should have I'd be making more money than I am now uh, <laughs> as state treasurer, but that's not why I'm in this. But anyway, so I started thinking when I was running for state treasurer, I'm like, look, we were constantly just trying to just jam everybody into college. Like, you got to go to college. You got to go to college. We're forcing everybody into college. What can we do? I mean, for the 75% of the West Virginia residents that don't have a college degree, after all the years of us berating them and telling them to go to college, Apparently, they want to do something else, right? So what can we do for the working people of West Virginia, which is the vast majority of them? And that's how I come up with the Jumpstart uh, Savings Program. And so what it is, it looks somewhat like a College 529, but it's for after graduation. And so you can use it to save money after you graduate from a trade school, technical school, community college, or a union apprenticeship. And once you graduate from one of those, you're, a, you're able to use the money to buy tools, equipment, licenses, certifications, and new business startup costs. And those accounts can stay open in perpetuity. And the tax advantage on it is they can deduct up to $25,000 a year per, con I mean, up to that contribution level off of their income taxes. So if they made 50,000 in a year, they can adjust down to 25,000 and that's their li tax liability for that year. Then we're gonna have an investment part of this uh, in terms of uh, growing the money and compounding interest where they won't have to pay capital gains tax in the state. And then when they take the money back, when they draw the money down to buy those qualified expenses I just mentioned, they can take another $25,000 tax deduction uh, as, as they draw the money out. And that's the maximum. Now, a lot of these guys perhaps might not be able to do that. I mean, maybe 5,000, 2,000 or what have you. But um, it, just as long as they've uh, graduated from one of those programs, trade, technical school, union apprenticeship, they are eligible to be able to do this. It was actually endorsed um, by the trade unions in West Virginia, but also endorsed by the Chamber of Commerce, which I don't remember any time in my life, the two of them <laughs> endorsing something together. Uh, but it was uh, certainly something that I'm very, very proud of. And it's the first of its kind in the country. It doesn't exist anywhere else. We're certainly hoping to expand it. We have talked to Ohio and Pennsylvania, Kentucky, and even Wisconsin, and they're looking at uh, also introducing this bill as well. But this is, I mean, we have to, you know, we're always talking about bringing back jobs from China. And yes, we got to bring back jobs from China. But who's going to work on those jobs? 
right? I mean, we're talking about manufacturing jobs. I mean, you just don't wake up one day and you have this know-how how to bend metal, right? I mean, that's a trade that has to be learned. But it's not just enough, in my view, to train them for those jobs. I mean, we need to be able to train and equip them for the jobs of the future, right? And having some agency over your ability to start a new business in the trades, I mean, is a really big deal as well. New business startup costs are covered in this. And if we're going to have a robust economy in this country or in the state of West Virginia, for instance, we have to have a strong middle class. And how we're going to do that is through employment in jobs like this. It's critically important. And giving people more ability to be more successful in these types of jobs is going to go a long way, I think, to strengthening the state of West Virginia. And God willing, at some point, this thing exists across the country because I think it would be uh, go a long way to achieve that same objective. It's such an important policy. But think about it at the macro level, what we've essentially created is a thumb on the scale for college in a thousand different ways, some of them cultural, but a lot of them policy. And, you know, Policies like this and, and with this sort of perspective can help to rebalance those scales and make it so that it's not the only way to responsibly be an adult to go to college. It, you can go into a trade. And um, I think sometimes people tend to romanticize what that's like. It's, it's not as simple as just deciding to do it. We have all these institutional barriers to, to doing it that, that you're helping to remove. Um, I think we have time for some questions. Uh, Nick's going to come to you uh, and give you the mic. Uh, if you could phrase your question or your your comment in the form of a question, that would be very helpful as well. Try to keep it brief. I, I will cut you off. Nick will probably take the mic away from you. Kevin. Great. Uh, gentlemen, great to see you both again. Uh, Kevin Lynn, U.S. Tech Workers. There was an interesting development just recently where in front of a, a congressional hearing, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of J.P. Morgan, when asked about their progress in divesting from the fossil fuel industry said, well, that's the road to hell. Do you think it was you and the work of the other states that kind of gave him a bit of backbone in that's, you know, in, from that perspective? I think that helps. Um, but, you know, to be clear, Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan Chase still boycott uh, the fossil fuel industry because they are boycotting coal and thermal coal. And if you look at his answer, he'll say, no, we don't boycott the fossil fuel industry. We do business in oil and gas. That's the answer. It's oil and gas, which is glad he's doing it. But um, it's also coal is a huge component of the fossil fuel industry. But to answer your question, I do think that uh, it's gone a long way in terms of the work that obviously we're doing. But, you know, I'm just the tip of the spear. We got, you know, a whole bunch of other states doing the same thing. This State Financial Officers Foundation, SFOF, which I'm a part of, there's 23 Republican state treasurers that are part of that, that are all pushing on this. Everyone is pushing on this same exact task. And so I'm hoping that had a, um, a little bit of an effect. And I, I, you know, honestly, I think it has because you've seen some of this where there was this new uh, asset manager pledge. Everyone's always taking pledges, you know, net zero for these hundred and whatever. Uh, I think this was Cairo or wherever the conference was. I can't remember exactly. But the bizarre thing was all these European asset managers signed up and, you know, we pledged to uh, completely decarbonize their uh, their portfolios by a certain timeline. Three did not that were very notable. And it was BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard. 
And that really stuck out to me because these are the guys that would have jumped on this just last year. And so I think it is having an effect, uh, particularly when you're starting to talk about pension funds and things like that. Those guys are in all that stuff, and we're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, it's a lot of money. Uh, along those lines, uh, what are the red herrings that you're worried about, the sort of superficial changes that some of these institutions might make that would be enough for the people in this town who want any excuse to do nothing but would not substantively address uh, everything that's going on? Yeah, what I'd say on that is, and I've, I've seen some acquiescence to the idea, even from BlackRock, of uh, proxy voting and allowing us to retain some of our voice and our vote through proxy voting. Proxy voting is important. It is important. We want to have our voice and our vote back on our pension funds. Uh, right now, we contract with BlackRock. If you contract with BlackRock um, on a pension fund or Vanguard or State Street or whoever it might be, you contract away your proxy votes. They have those votes. And just so that everyone knows, proxy votes are uh, when an intermediary institution votes your shares that you, say, a pension provider uh, have uh, in a company. And so for the thousands of uh, little decisions that happen at every quarterly meeting and such, you know, you state like West Virginia can't do all those votes. No. Um, it's just it's just not feasible in terms of the amount of resources you guys have for how much money you have under management. Um, but you were saying... Yeah, and that, that's a good uh, clarifying point because I know not everyone thinks about proxy voting every day of their life. But um, the... Uh, the the issue at hand there is yes there there's the index act that's been introduced in congress here that's a good bill it is a good bill and i like it quite a bit um but that is not going to solve this it's not the i mean it doesn't need to be part of the solution absolutely but also i do get scared of the idea a little bit on the index act if we say okay everybody gets to vote their shares everybody here who has shares are you all going to do that? Is everybody going to do that? And then if you don't do that, then is that just going to give BlackRock, State Street, and Vanguard more power because people are not voting? So I think we've got to be a little bit careful uh, on how we do that. So that's certainly not a silver bullet on that. Um, obviously, there are a lot of other ways that we can try to, that you all out there uh, can try to address this for us uh, at a federal level. And certainly the states are going to try to keep working on this as well. Hey, uh, Andrew Brown with the Heritage Foundation. Uh, first of all, thanks a lot for what you do. The uh, Like probably most people, I this wasn't something on my radar until you got in the news a couple years ago. So thanks a lot. Um, you touched on it, and I was a little late. So if you've already answered this, please just uh, punt. But uh, I'm definitely curious on what you think, like as somebody who's working at the state level, like what can Congress or the executive branch, like what are some things conservatives in D.C., like some tangible policy things that they could uh, be striving for, whether that's legislation or other actions that would really help you and the other guys working in the trenches there at the states. Yeah, um, I touched on that Index Act. I think that is a good bill. Uh, I think there needs to be some more massaging on it, exactly what we, what would you would want that to look like. Um, but it is in the right vein of what we want to do. But secondarily, you got uh, Congressman Andy Barr has a bill out there as it relates to pecuniary factors uh, within uh, within pension funds, obviously, that are governed by ERISA. So, sorry, you all probably don't... Explain but, all of that. Yeah, so um, these are private pension funds. And so pecuniary factors are risk and return. 
which those are the only, so what we want in that bill and what it's going to do is say, okay, pension fund managers, asset managers, the only risk in return, you can only uh, take under consideration just financial risk and return. That's it. Right now we have these other factors that are being brought in, social risk, environmental risk. And so it's creating this quagmire of fiduciary responsibility, essentially, right? Uh, where they're not just taking the sole pecuniary factors of risk and return and t- keeping that narrowly tailored as it relates to those uh, kind of definitive facts that they need to be looking at. Now it's environmental risk, social risk, some of these other things. How do you define social risk? Environmental risk, you're talking about a horizon of what, uh, you know, when do the ice caps melt? I don't know, 100 years, 200 years, or when, whenever they're saying that's going to happen, which will never happen. But in any event, how do you make financial decisions based on something like that? How, how do you make a financial decision based on something that that is so non-concrete, right? And so that's why any bars bill, uh, Congressman any bars bill, I think that is a very important one in terms of trying to rein that back in, um, those pecuniary factors as it relates to risk and return. Next question. Hi, I'm Teresa. I work for Representative Chip Roy. You mentioned a little bit the issue of credit card companies using merchant category codes to identify gun, ammunition purchases. I know Patrick Morrissey, and I think you as well sent a letter to the heads of these companies and expressed concerns. Just to be clear, I sent the letter first. but <laughs> Okay. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. What, I guess, legal action on the state level or policy ch- changes do you think either Congress or state legislatures could make to address that side of ESG investing? Yeah, I really think that has to be a federal issue, right? I mean, because you're talking about companies that operate in every state of America, right? I mean, all over the world, obviously, but as it relates to the authorities uh, and jurisdiction that you all would be concerned with, which we all are, is this country. So I think there does need to be some federal action. What that looks like I mean, certainly, look, you could legislate uh, something as it relates to um, non-social factors on, cre- uh, on, on coding, right, as it relates to what they're doing to these credit cards. At the state level, I mean, we're a little bit held hostage. I mean, there's not that much we can do except try to look for alternatives, which is something that we're looking at right now. Now, we, Attorney General Morrissey, don't want to speak for him. Uh, certainly uh, him or some other attorney general uh, could try to file suit over something like this, which I don't think that's out of the realm of possibility. Uh, I'm not saying he's going to do that, just to be clear for anybody watching this, but I'm just saying in uh, hypothetical, perhaps that is something they can consider doing. But on a federal level, I mean, I think you need to think uh, in terms of the way they are coding this, is there ways you can take out things that still protect our constitutional rights and not have us potentially subject to oversight? Like if the feds tomorrow say, turn, us, turn over all these records on this, and now everyone's going to know how many guns and ammunition and all of us have, um, which I think is scary for a lot of people. It's scary for everybody in West Virginia, I'll tell you that. So I think it does have to be addressed at the federal level, though, I'd say. Lars Schoenander of Lincoln Network, not to be confused with the project. <laughs> uh, just a quick question. Has the state of West Virginia tracked how many jobs have been lost because of ESG policies? 
Well, what I can tell you, to give you a context, when we had the war on coal with Obama, which that's when they tried to push this through the EPA, which has now been found to be unconstitutional, that entire mess that we went through, direct and indirect coal mining jobs uh, during that time period in which we lost was roughly 30,000. So it was uh, it was devastating. Out of a working age population of... I mean, we got, I mean, just population-wise, like 1.8 million people. So like a significant percentage. of. Yeah, I mean, it was, it, it sent our uh, economy uh, spiraling, and we, uh, we actually ended up in a budget deficit uh, where we had to bail out our state budget. Uh, we were, I was in the legislature for that. It was, uh, it was terrible. You know, and we felt those ramifications for a pretty long time. So that's why when I got these same cast of characters coming right back around and trying to do this again, I know how this is going to go, right? We've already seen part one of this. Um, and, you know, I get these folks all the time saying, well, you have to understand the energy transition and you have to under, they talk about the energy transition like it's a foregone conclusion, like it's something that has to happen. I mean, it, it's crazy. They're like, well, you know, you'll, you'll have the ability to make solar panels or learn how to code. It's like, we don't want to do any of that. We don't want to do that. That's not what we're, I mean, like, that's not what we want to do in our lives. And these folks are trying to dictate to us how we should live our lives, right? I mean, that's the scariest part about this. Um, so I, I do want to go back to one other question that you asked, what other things could Congress do? This is an important one that I want you all to think about. S&P and these rating agencies are giving ESG scores to states now and municipalities. This is going to, West Virginia's got an ESG score. Not this year, but in coming years, this could affect our bond rating, which has been AAA, perfect, great bond rating. This is going to affect, we could, we could take a, a low, we could essentially get a lower bond rating now because of an ESG score from S&P which means that for us to bond out things like projects like schools, hospitals, roads, it's going to cost us more money. The taxpayers are going to be punished because of factors that they told us, such as flooding and it rains too much. And they said something about our demographics and things like that around ESG, things that have nothing to do with the finances of the state of West Virginia. We have had a $1.3 billion surplus, we got a $1 billion rainy day fund. We got more money under management right now in our general revenue fund, $9.2 billion than we ever had in the state's history. But we might take a downgrade in our credit rating. I mean, like, are you kidding me? That's something at the federal level, if they could look into that, because at the state level, there's not too much. It's hard for us to really do anything and maneuver in there. Well, it's such a tough issue, right? Because uh, bond ratings aren't given by some sort of federal entity, right? It's not the government doing it. And so it's, it's one of these things that, you know, is one of those fences, metaphorically speaking, that was just put up a long time ago. And no one expected people to monkey with it, but they have. And now it could it could seriously jeopardize um, uh, the state of West Virginia and cost y'all millions of dollars. Um, do we have any more questions? Because I certainly have some. We have one back here. <laughs> Hey, Marshall Sullings. I work for Jason Smith. I just had a question about 
what the reaction from your constituents in West Virginia to this ESG vendetta that you've been on? Um, it's been overwhelmingly positive. Um, I, I get mail, letters, phone calls all the time. I mean, they're very supportive. And you have to understand, as I said, with the war on coal uh, under Obama, we've lived through this, something similar to this before. We know the stakes are high. We know it's going to happen um, if they prevail. And the worst part is they're not just after coal now. It's also natural gas and oil, uh, which would be even more disastrous. Uh, I mean, even Jamie Dimon is still like, hey, man, maybe don't mess with natural gas. I mean, it's like, but you got the Black Rocks and everybody, some of these other folks out here that are pushing this. You had Rashida Tlaib in that exact same hearing that this gentleman back in Kevin talked about saying, you're not doing enough to divest, right? We need you to divest more from natural gas and oil and coal. I mean, it's, I don't know what they think this country is going to look like if we do that, but uh, I give you a little flash forward. Uh, it'd be Germany right now. And I don't want to look like that. You know, they're going to have the utility bills going up eight, nine X this winter. It's a hundred bucks going from $900 a month. Is there anybody, I, I mean, that could reasonably think the average American could afford an increase like that? I mean, this is, this is the type of stuff that, not that it would happen here, but overseas and in other countries, I mean, topples governments. I mean, people are not going to stand for this stuff. Yeah, the lights don't turn on and you get food shortages and that's the recipe of revolutions. On a similar point, um, I think West Virginia is one of these states that people don't really understand. Uh, you know, to just make the point in raw political terms, it's the state in the union that votes that voted most for President Trump by percentage points, but still elects Joe Manchin. Uh, and it, it's it's part of what has colloquially previously been called, you know, uh, uh, or it's similar to blue wall states like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, Minnesota. Um, well, can you describe what it is exactly that West Virginia voters want, and 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 why is it that maybe the traditional conservative movement and the Republican Party haven't always been appealing to them? Yeah, I mean, look, we've had successive administrations, Democrats and Republicans failed the state of West Virginia. I mean, we dealt with this with NAFTA. We dealt with this when they let China into the WTO and really, I mean, struck a, a death nail in the coffin for steel. Look, we do a, we did. We're starting to come back on it now. We just got Nucor, huge project in West Virginia, Nucor Steel. Um, which is a big win for us, but we're just starting to rebound from this. I mean, this crushed our steel industry in West Virginia, crushed us. And what makes steel? Metallurgical coal makes steel, and we got a lot of it. And so we've been let down successively through free trade deals and China and the WTO and all that. I mean, it's they're an often overlooked group. I mean, you know, you talk about this kind of like, global supply chain thing that we've been living through in a place like West Virginia, how does that affect us, right? I mean, a great example of that is Walmart. Okay, so Walmart comes into small towns and communities in West Virginia. What does that do? It destroyed and gutted those small towns. Those small businesses went away. They no longer exist. And so now we have the same type of elites, elite uh, globalists coming in and saying, 
you liked Walmart, so what would you think about us taking away your coal mining jobs because those are also terrible? And so the end of the day, we end up in a position where they're trying to essentially uh, press us into some type of serfdom to working for a place like Walmart, which will be the only option that we'll have left. I mean, if you think that's living in America, like that is that, I mean, that's not living. That's not what this country's about. And so we're tired of outside pressures coming in and trying to tell us the best way to live our lives. We know the best way to live our lives. And before all this nonsense with free trade deals that hurt the state of West Virginia and globalization and all that, Charleston, West Virginia was the richest city per capita east of the Mississippi up until like 1968, 69. This was a state that was thriving before all of this happened. And some people say, oh, that's the past. We can't, I mean, you can always reclaim and bring back uh, industries, jobs, and re-strengthen. I mean, I think we've, thing, we've seen this run to its logical conclusion and what it does and what the aftermath of all of this, all of these policies that have hurt us look like. And it's rampant drug addiction. It's unemployment. We have lots of lots of opioid deaths in West Virginia. It's a tragedy. And there's nobody cares about it. There's nobody cares about it. You know, I mean, it rarely gets talked about. And it's in states like ours in Ohio and Kentucky and other places like that. But I mean, it's been really hard in West Virginia. And that's linked directly to our jobs and all this uh, the jobs leaving the state as it relates to globalization and restriction on energy. And so now we're starting to see, I mean, the most sacred thing to us uh, start to disintegrate, and that's our families, right? I mean, we got, we have a, a, a massive amount of children in foster and kinship care. I mean, more than we can handle right now. And it's, the, all of these policies have done this. So that's why when... Why do they vote for Joe Manchin? Why is it a state that um, was a majority registered Democrat just until last year, uh, but voting 70% for Trump? That's why, right? I mean, Trump's the only guy that's ever, ever, ever done anything on China. Everybody else just kowtowed to this entire thing. He's the only man who's been in that White House who's ever stood up to it. And of course, he's going to get 70% of the vote in China. I mean, American people are smart. In West Virginia. Or in, in, yes, West Virginia. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, in, in West Virginia. Let's edit that part. Uh, but in, in, in West Virginia, of course he's going to get 70% of the vote. Massive amounts of Democrats and Republicans voting for him. And so I think there is something to be said about s people in West Virginia feel that Joe Manchin is uh, standing up for them. Though I will say this uh, new, new Green New Deal certainly uh, severely disappointing for a lot of people in the state of West Virginia. So I think we'll see how it plays out in uh, a couple short years here in 2024. One last question. Hey, I'm Alex Gorman. I work for the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Um, it's sort of a pivot, but I did want to ask. I, I spent uh, last year working in, in state government, and one of my, my favorite roles actually was working for a state lobbyist. Um, and I think in a lot of these conversations, we do end up underselling the amount of influence that is in practice had uh, in the private sector. Um, so I guess I wanted to get your take on how you deal with the BlackRock lobbyist influencing your legislatures. 
um, and what how that looks on a state level, and maybe if you have any things that that are worth uh, the the lobbyist conversation up here. Um, yeah. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting on that is like in a state like West Virginia, it's a small state. It's like, I know all the lobbyists. They know me. I've known them for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, whatever it is. I mean, it's just the same kind of folks. And it's not, it's a lot different than it is up here, right? I mean, these are just kind of your regular guys that have kicked around the Capitol for a long time. They just live down the road. You know, they're not kind of some high-powered, high-flying lobbyists. But then when you do something like I did, then you see people you've never seen before uh, showing up at the state Capitol uh, saying, hey, I'm from such and such group. Um, you know, we had uh, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo and them pushing very hard, leveraging the West Virginia Bankers Association in our state through the American Bankers Association. And they had a lot of juice and they started to go not just to the legislature, which was smart, they were going to the community banks and trying to push the community banks to get against this because they knew that they had a lot of juice with their constituencies in the, um, in the finance industry in the state of West Virginia, which they did not capitulate on, thank God. Uh, got to hand it to them, pretty smart strategy actually to get outside of the Capitol and do that kind of a move. But... Um, West Virginia is one of these states now. I know they've employed a lot of them in Texas and other places like that. And there's a lot of these BlackRock guys flying around all over the place. It's a hard state to just kind of like break into, right? You know, somebody shows up. If I saw somebody at the Capitol and I'm the lobbyist for this, you don't even need to meet them. It's like I could see them and be like, that guy's new. Like it's, you know, we're a pretty tight knit group in there. Um, I know BlackRock was trying to pick up several uh, lobbyists, even Republican ones and Democrat ones, and almost all of them, except for a few, refused it. They didn't want to get involved. Uh, they did not want to get in front of that train because we got kind of this bipartisan support against BlackRock because what BlackRock is doing on the Democrat side of the coin for them, we got this big strike against BlackRock and their metallurgical coal mines and the UMWA, United Mine Workers of America, has been striking against them. So Anything we can do to push against BlackRock, even the Democrats are for, except kind of our younger, more woke liberal uh, legislators that we have. But uh, the old guard is certainly, which is more in the vein of a Joe Manchin, uh, they're, they're certainly uh, in line with us on that. I hope that answers your question. With that, we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Please give Riley Moore a round of applause. Thank you. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.